At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Let's get started. Welcome to another question and answer episode of the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you the tools and the knowledge to have a long health span and good health. Yeah, I'm excited for this talk today. We're just going to be you know, prompted by some of the questions people ask us about growth hormone and growth hormone peptides and mTOR and all sorts of exciting things. So uh, I guess uh, growth hormone peptides and prostate is as good a place as any to start. Mm -hmm. So. I think a lot of people watched uh, the Mark Bell Power Project podcast with uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman on there, and he talked about yep. you know, he had used some of these peptides under medical supervision, of course, um, and had an increase in his PSA, so quit taking them. So then mm. we had all sorts of people asking us about, you know, is growth hormone growing the prostate? Is this, you know, real? What's going on here? Uh, so yeah, I guess a good way to unpack that is, you know, uh, what does what are the effects of growth hormone peptides? What are they? Um, just at, at a base level for people who have may mm -hmm. have never heard of these things. And then what are they typically used for um, and who should not use them? This is a great discussion and we'll do our best to refine it down to a pithy amount of content. But growth hormone in and of itself um, is a peptide hormone. So it's both a peptide, a string of amino acids, and a hormone signaling molecule as well. So there is a, um, I suppose you could call it a landmark study in the New England Journal of Medicine probably about 30 years ago, and it was on growth hormone and its effect on increasing lean body mass and decreasing body fat in older individuals. And then after that, there was kind of that cascade of off-label growth hormone treatment. And then after that, as um, the dangers of using growth hormone, think of it, uh, in Kansas, we might describe it as the shotgun of hormones. Uh, growth agonist in many different systems, and then of course it, it's a kind of like offspring for better, for lack of a better term, IGF-1. So IGF-1 and growth hormone um, are affecting all these different systems in the body, including the prostate, including adipose tissue, including body mass, and it has many different hormones. It kind of reminds me of thyroid hormone because of the different systems that it works in. Right, it's very non-specific. It's going to act on tissues whether you want it to or not. So. When you look at like how anabolic growth hormone really is, what, what we seem to see in the data is that it actually just increases your rate of whole body protein mm -hmm. synthesis. And you know the biggest thing that I think people see there um, is with connective tissue. Yep. Um, so you know over time, you know people are taking these peptides, and anecdotally, what you hear is improvements in sleep quality, improvements in how your your joints feel. 
and that may not be the, the root cause. A lot of people are taking these things and they don't really have a growth hormone deficiency. Mm -hmm. Probably better to look at you know muscle imbalances. Lots of people have um, lower back issues, just sitting a lot, uh, tight hamstrings, things like that that you can solve without exposing yourself to, uh, you know, a lot of these are still you know, experimental compounds are kind of in a, a gray area or FDA approved for testing for a growth hormone deficiency, but not mm -hmm. to treat a growth hormone deficiency. Um, so a lot of these are off-label prescriptions, just like all prescriptions, a, a large percentage are actually off-label because they have additional uses. So yeah, I think it's very non-specific, similar to you know, thyroid mm -hmm. hormone. And yeah, I've heard some people talk about, you know, when might it be a good time to use these things. And uh, for somebody that has you know, good insulin sensitivity, that's a good candidate for yep. this. Uh, someone around the time of a, a surgery, perhaps, that they want to you know, heal up from faster. You know, mm -hmm. Maybe there's some instances where that makes sense. There if is. you're 20 years old, you're going to heal up from surgery just fine. You've already got... Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah, I shouldn't say always, uh, but... Uh, you're going to have plenty of growth hormone, more than likely at you know, 20, 30 years old. But if for somebody, you know, older, you know, maybe more frail, you really want to make sure that they, they heal up and give them the best shot, yeah. um, then that can make sense for a short period of time. It yeah. makes me very nervous when I see people and they're like, oh, yeah, I've been on this for five years nonstop because that's a lot of growth signaling. And there's mm -hmm. not just positives to being you know, anabolic and growth signaling. Yep. There's some risks as well. And there's a lot of debate between different molecules that are growth agonist or that are oh, hormetic. And often those are, there's a balance between the two. So you want a decent amount of hormesis. So some people might be familiar with sirtuins or basically um, a state of, um, not a hibernation state, but a state where you're not overly anabolic. It gives your body a chance and your immune system a chance to look for things like precancerous or cancerous cells and take care of them via endogenous immunotherapy, if you will. Whereas the growth molecules will speed up cell cycling so much, and growth hormone is just one of them. A lot of the other ones that are talked about are things like CJC, or semorelin, ipomorelin, ibutamorin, and these basically come down to two different classes of molecules. You can refer to all of them as GHRPs, but you either have your uh, ghrelin agonists, which increase growth hormone via a G-protein coupled receptor that it was later found to be related to ghrelin, and then your GHRHs, which are essentially synthetic versions of GHRH with just a couple amino acids changed. Yeah, and I think it's important for people to realize that in true growth hormone deficiency, these peptides, the secretagogues, are, are going to be less likely. I wouldn't say they would never work to treat a growth hormone deficiency, yeah. uh, but they would be less likely to work because the, pro the reason you have a growth hormone deficiency is mm -hmm. the pituitary is not putting out the hormones like it Correct. should be. Um, and there's things that can present as a growth hormone deficiency if all you're looking at is an IGF-1 level. Yes. Uh, for example, if somebody is in a, a steep calorie deficit, yep. uh, they're going to have a low IGF-1, not a lot of growth and anabolism going on. If somebody is uh, restricting carbohydrates very low, you're going to have a lack of insulin signaling in the liver. You're not going to produce as much IGF-1. So if you're not taking a careful history, you may be trying to do a good thing and then over-diagnosing people with growth hormone deficiency when in reality, people that are fasting, uh, people with low insulin signaling, they tend to have hyper-secretion of yeah. growth hormone. Uh, great example of this is type 1 diabetics. Great example. 
Yeah, so uh, if your IGF-1 is low or high or even normal, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're in the optimal range. There's even other things to take into account. So just like you have total testosterone and free testosterone and total thyroid hormone and free thyroid hormones, you also have total IGF-1 or just IGF-1 and free IGF-1 that is not bound to the many binding peptides, somewhat analogous to SHBG for sex steroid hormones. So when you're starting a treatment, there's a couple pitfalls. One is that perhaps you just have a very low level of IGF-BP3, or which is a lot genetic, or IGF-BP1. A lot of individuals are familiar with that because metformin can affect IGF-BP1 as well, and especially your lifestyle affects it from time to time. So that one needs to be taken fasting for sure. But anyway, you have a much higher risk of things like prostate cancer if your IGF-BP3 levels are off. So your actual gene transcription can be dysregulated even with a normal IGF-1. Similar to how you can have a normal testosterone, but very low gene transcription or very high gene transcription at the androgen receptor that we talked about in a recent podcast. Yeah, it, I think it really is analogous to the sex hormone binding globulin. There's binding proteins for you know, essentially lots of different hormones in the body. And you could have a lower level of binding protein and you're gonna have more, just, just call it growth signaling yep. uh, in the prostate, for example. And you don't wanna be in that you know, upper tertile or you know, the, even out of the range of the IGF-1, especially if you have low IGF-1 binding proteins. Mm -hmm because we do see that that's correlated with you know, incidences of cancer later on in life. And you know, we can talk about the correlation isn't causation, yep. but there's some pretty compelling data when you look at the pathology on you know, different tumors, cancer cells, atypical cells that would tend to overexpress things like growth hormone receptors, yep. IGF-1 receptors, and in Vegf. general. Yeah. Yeah, vasculogenesis as well. That's yeah. a pretty potent combo. Yeah. They love growth. Anything, yeah, anything that's going to promote growth. Yep, NMN even. Yeah, in theory, some of the, the NAD precursors, the NMN, um, NR, those things could have mild you know, carcinogenic, I wouldn't say carcinogenic, but could promote the growth of an already existing cancer. It's another stick on the fire of a growth agonist stack. <laughs> yeah, the, the pro-cancer stack. Yeah. And we know that people that have lower levels of IGF-1, they do tend to live longer. So you want to, in general, do things that are mm -hmm. associated with you know, healthier outcomes, so like yeah. eating your vegetables, eating your fiber. You can, you can argue about correlation all day long, but the data is pretty darn compelling. Yeah. yeah, it is. Another good good rule of thumb is if you wouldn't do anything with, uh, for example, if let's say you're on testosterone replacement, if you would change your management drastically with only a total testosterone, no free or bioavailable T, no SHBG. All you have is a total testosterone. Um, changing management of GHRPs is without uh, anything more than an IGF-1 is similar to changing your testosterone dose and you just have a total T. Yeah, and that can vary. You know, We've both seen sex from a binding globulins way off the charts low, you know, like a yep. 10 if somebody is very insulin resistant. Like a two after RAD 140. <laughs> <laughs> yes, with the, the, the SARMs yeah. users pushing yeah. their SHBG down to nearly negative levels. Yeah. Uh, and then off the charts high in other you know, cases, you know, liver disease, for example, mm -hmm. um, or some people that just have those 
know, polymorphisms that are likely mm -hmm. contributing to that. So yep. there's even people who literally produce no SHBG, and this is very rare, yep. um, but they will have normal development with a serum testosterone that's very, very low, like 100 nanogram per deciliter. Yep. Um, so, you know, is that impacting tissue delivery? Now that's a whole other podcast, perhaps, because SHBG yeah. may be uh, serving as a, a factor that delivers the hormone to the tissue. Correct. But we, we may discuss that another time. Uh, to kind of go back to the prostate, um, the prostate aspect of this, uh, most men are going to end up with some prostate symptoms as they increase in age. You know, most guys that are 60, 70 that I'm interviewing, getting a history on, they're getting up at least once, if not more times a night to get up and use the restroom. Mm -hmm. um, and the prostate is just going to grow unless you do something to offset that. Um, and those growth agonists are more than likely going to grow the prostate, sometimes in pretty short order, um, and particularly if they get combined with testosterone, like some of these you know, one-stop shops where you come in and you get your testosterone, your growth hormone, and you know, whatever else is included, uh, and everybody gets put on that, that's a pretty potent combo for prostate growth. Yeah, it's uh, some of the irony of anti-aging clinics. You go there and you get your TRT and you get your GHRPs and you get your NMN, and then um, at the end of the day, uh, your prostate has aged. Not, it doesn't necessarily age in huge leaps forward, but you've just sped up the aging of the cell turnover of the prostate significantly. And it's a, something that we see often. Of course, we have lots of patients that transfer in, and it's something that you see in the clinical literature as well. Both growth hormone agonism, even if IGF-1 does not increase, growth hormone will increase cell turnover and size of the prostate. And also keep in mind, maybe IGF-1 didn't increase um, during the administration of CJC or Sermorlin or whatnot, but perhaps free IGF-1 did increase. So there's a, a lot of other confounding variables to keep in mind with that but you do see significant prostate growth. Um, some of the prostate growth is not directly androgenic. So it is possible that even individuals on a medication like dutasteride, which completely inhibits uh, the, well, not completely, but 99% at a normal prostate dose. So daily administration, you'll have very low conversion of testosterone to DHT, but testosterone itself is an agonist at the androgen receptor in the prostate. And then it also aromatizes to estrogen. The prostate has, it's one of the tissues that has both estradiol receptors or both estrogen receptors, alpha and beta. And it's interesting because depending on which one of those receptors are, they have different effects in the prostate. One potentially might restrict some growth and then one might stimulate growth. Yeah, and with regard to dutasteride in the prostate, uh, that's pretty well established as something that's going to be net anti-cancer because yes. You know, DHT is something that will you know, put fuel on the fire and there's some debate about testosterone levels and mm -hmm. uh, like a, a concentration where above and beyond you know, a certain nanogram per deciliter you're not going to have more growth but I, I find that a bit difficult and a bit simplistic to just yep. rationalize because you know, there's no ceiling for the testosterone and the DHT and we know that you know lowering that DHT is yep. something that does reduce prostate size and reduces progression of active prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. um, they did a, I believe it was about a three year trial with people on daily dutasteride and they saw a significant reduction in the progression and size of prostate tumors versus people that were taking placebo. 
Uh, they actually have a trial going on now with metformin doing the same thing, just to see if daily metformin, since it's generally well tolerated, is going to have any you know, anti-cancer properties. And there's been mixed data with metformin on cancer. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some meta-analyses that show that it, it does reduce you know, cancer incidence, um, and you see you know, some cases where metformin does not. So I, I believe there was a paper, breast cancer recently, it, certain type of breast cancer didn't seem to have any effect yeah. and then you see other cancers where you know it does seem to have a net anti-cancer effect but it's not like you're you know blocking a hundred percent possibility that mm -hmm. cancer is going to occur that's just more complicated than that so that is a trial that I'm interested to see the results come out on uh, because it's going to be you know increasing IGF-1 binding proteins and that's in theory going to decrease the IGF one that's bioavailable to mm -hmm. grow a prostate tumor. Yep. I'd love to see a trial with a selection group of individuals taking metformin and looking at incidence of cancer if they have severe insulin resistance and are also on a GHRP. It would be a very niche group to find, but if you, if you think of that group, that's, those are the individuals who would theoretically benefit the most. Yeah, there's always a subgroup that you know, something would work well for. Um, and that's why subgroup analyses can be really interesting because you can see some, you know, like hyper responders and yeah. even in case studies, um, you know, talking about rapamycin and, you know, being used as an adjunct or uh, for like a renal cell carcinoma, mm -hmm. you know, very high mortality rate. And you see a couple of case studies sprinkled around where mm -hmm. people are significantly outliving what's predicted because they, you know, they respond well to that drug. Is it going to work for yeah. everybody that has renal cell carcinoma? Absolutely not. Um, but there are people out there that it, it works for, and that's why precision medicine is uh, you know, very exciting. Yeah, and it's another example of why something like anecdotal evidence can potentially be useful. So when you're looking at subgroup analyses, you have to be careful with um, the analysis because the, uh, you know, it's not the primary endpoint, and there is more likely to be confounding variables or just issues with the materials and methods um, because you're not mainly looking at that subgroup. However, it can tell you a lot about uh, a multiple groups of people rather than with anecdotal evidence or a case study. You're usually just looking at one or maybe two patients. Yeah, and you know, that's one of the things, one of the studies I like to talk about. We may have talked about this on a previous podcast, but the uh, early studies on aspirin trying to show that it was useful in acute myocardial infarction, people having heart attacks. Mm -hmm. um, they were, you know, doing subgroup analyses, or actually the researchers were not doing a subgroup analysis. They published their findings to the New England Journal of Medicine and it got rejected because there wasn't a subgroup analysis. Yep. So the researchers sort of, you know, thought to themselves, well, we don't want to do one, but if they're going to make us do one, we'll do one on, you know, just mm -hmm. breaking down patients by their zodiac signs. Malicious compliance. Exactly. Um, yeah. Quite clever. And they found that two out of the you know, 12 zodiac signs uh, did not have any benefit from aspirin in acute myocardial infarction. And oh you know, no, we would laugh at that <laughs> and say that's not you know, that's not evidence based, but uh, the numbers don't lie. So it, it's quite comical to think about now going into a, yeah. a hospital and when was your birthday? No, no aspirin for you. Uh, but it's just a great example of the more ways you slice and dice the data, the more likely you are to just get something mm -hmm. by coincidence, so that's why follow-up is very important. Another example of slicing and dicing the, the data, or at least the anecdotal evidence, is this uh, gym lore, for lack of a better term, 
where MK677 or Ibutamorin and also Tessamorlin, that these are the only two GHRPs, which is interesting because Tessamorlin's a GHRH, but Ibutamorin's actually a ghrelin agonist, so they're actually different classes, but that those are the only ones that can affect IGF-1 or free IGF-1, given that there's a pretty significant amount of evidence that um, others in this same class can affect IGF-1, but in a dose-dependent manner. Yeah, and it's always something I, I wonder about when I see patients that are you know, transferring, coming to us, they have their lab work, and they're like, you know, yes, I, I started on this, and my IGF-1 you know, didn't increase, and a lot of times they're taking a, a fairly hefty dose that I would expect to see an increase with, regardless of which you know, yep. GHRP or GHRH or combination that they were taking. Um, so I wonder about the, the potency of some of these things, if people are getting them from um, unreputable pharmacies or if they're getting them from you know, just research chemical companies. Uh, you really don't know, you know what's in there, which is one or another reason it's important to get blood work and see you know, how are things affecting you on an individual level. Because mm -hmm. you could look in a study and say, yep. okay, this is going to increase IGF-1 by this percentage. You know, that's what it's going to do for me. Uh, but okay, what's your baseline IGF-1? What do your IGF-1 binding proteins look like? Yep. And then a few months after you are taking something like this, how much is your IGF-1 going up? Are your IGF-1 binding proteins going up? You know, what are you doing to, to mitigate your you know, long-term cancer risk? What's the breaks on your, your growth right now? Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Um, and again, thinking about growth agonists and GHRPs, this doesn't mean that nobody should take a GHRP. It just means that uh, monitoring should be done like any other hormone replacement therapy. Yeah, and if somebody truly has a growth hormone deficiency, then it, it makes sense a lot of times yep. for quality of life, if it's really you know that significant, that they can derive a benefit in quality of life, and you may not even be boosting their growth hormone past where it would have been naturally. Mm -hmm. uh, but if the IGF-1 is off the charts, and people are having fluid retention, and their hands are going numb, you know, it's probably too much. You're probably pushing levels too high, and that's... Yeah more of a pro-growth as opposed to a, a replacement dose. Yeah. So I, I don't think that the, the incidence of growth hormone deficiency is something like 70% like you might be led to believe by the marketing. Yeah, um, it's probably a bit much if it's giving you carpal tunnel, unless there's something else that's causing that as well. Uh, one interesting thing about growth hormone replacement, especially in, well, in children, is that if you look at the doses required to correct short stature syndrome versus the doses to correct growth hormone deficiency, the doses for short stature syndrome are often much higher. Yeah, and I think that has to do with an individual sensitivity. So there are some, uh, some of these mutations that affect how well your IGF-1 receptors work yep. and how well your growth hormone receptors work. Uh, there's actually one that's in this pool of uh, the centenarians, actually, people that tend to live over 100 years. Mm -hmm. And they actually have taller than average stature. I think on average, it's about 6'2 for the mm -hmm. men. I'm not sure exactly what it is for females. Uh, but basically, they grow normally. Um, and then they actually have lower IGF-1, if I recall correctly. So when you look at all these different mutations that are associated with longevity, um, whether that's in mice or in humans, in the case of um, like you know dwarves with some growth hormone or IGF-1 uh, mutations, those are the ones that tend to have people being particularly long-lived. 
Um, you know, aside from ones that protect against cardiovascular disease, et cetera, yep. there are some other you know, genes there that promote like a resilience to disease. Mm -hmm. Shall we move on to another topic? Yeah, so uh, this paper came out uh, a couple weeks ago, I believe. Um, and so we're not going to be talking about growth hormone replacement, but beer serum replacement therapy. Yeah. Uh, so basically, I, I can't believe that this study hasn't been done sooner now that I'm you know, looking at this, but yep. scientists noticed that bears, they don't move, they sleep all winter, and they don't seem to lose muscle mass. Lots of beige fat as well. Yeah, lots of brown active active thermogenesis. Brown and beige both. But we know that when we put people in a hospital, if you're in a hospital on a ventilator or even just laying around with you know, pneumonia, which if you have pneumonia, you shouldn't be laying around. You should be trying to get up and stay active. Nope. Um, but we know that people decondition and, and pretty rapidly. Uh, you see the same thing with astronauts, even when they are intentionally training, trying to maintain muscle mass and cardiac yep. function, atrophy occurs. And they're like, why is this you know, not happening with bears? And I, I guess they pick bears because, I mean, when I hear the word hibernation, that's the animal I think of, but we know there's other smaller mammals that are probably easier to collect serum from. Yeah. Uh, but they're like, we're going to pick bears. They're better at hormesis. They're built different. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute units. Yeah, definitely built different. Yeah. So they collect the bear serum. And an important distinction is that uh, if you take uh, the bear serum during the summer, it doesn't work. Uh, but I guess I should back up to what the actual experiment is. So they have, this is in vitro. Um, so before this becomes a, a TikTok trend and people start Googling bear serum for muscle growth, this is muscle cells, human muscle cells, mm -hmm. but they're in a Petri dish. Yeah. And when you apply the winter bear serum to them, you see an increase in muscle size. Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't work with the summer serum, so whatever factors are shifting bears into hibernation probably are triggering the production of another factor that is protective or is anabolic for muscle. Mm -hmm. uh, and they don't know what the factor is. They just straight out said it. They said there is a factor. So there's a mystery factor in bear serum that we're looking for, but it's a really interesting, uh, really interesting chase because there's so many different applications. Mm -hmm. If you look at any kind of muscle wasting disease. Yep. Um, so something that I'll, I'll keep my eye on. I don't know what the timeline is on solving that mystery, but I thought that was a really interesting study. Yeah, I like that study a lot. It kind of reminds me of a, a medication known as Ursodiol or Udka, basically Tudka without a taurine attached to it. But that was originally found in bears as well. The U stands for Ursa or bear. And um, I don't know if they actually used to um, use the refined uh, bear bile itself because it was a bear bile acid or I, I think I believe a company out of Japan figured out how to synthesize it and now I believe it's an AbV product but it's used pretty frequently within um, both like medicine for cholestasis or cholestasis of pregnancy and in bodybuilding as well yeah I mean these things get parsed out and you find out like oh, this is happening in nature, how can we get this one specific target? Because really that's what you know, medicines are mm -hmm. trying to do is target one specific thing. Uh, it doesn't work very well most of yep. the time. There's multiple targets. But when you find out a certain factor um, that is present in nature, it has an effect, how can we make it work in humans? And then 
you know, how can we make analogs of this that might work even better? Yeah. That's generally how that process goes. So, yeah, interesting. These products come from bears. Um, I actually don't know how that they how they would be. I guess you have to sedate the bear and then draw blood off of them. I don't think the bears are lining up to donate their serum. Yeah, I, I wouldn't think so. Um, I I suppose they use this in zoos. That's one potentially good application of zoo animals, not to get into a whole ethics discussion. Yeah, and uh, what if we find out it's just all the polyphenols and the berries they were eating all along? <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah. Uh, but enough about bears. Uh, Kyle actually did tell me that the most dangerous part of a bear is the liver yeah. um, due to vitamin toxicity. Uh, but in other news, we found out that there is a... Uh, naturally magically skinny population uh, mm -hmm. people with very low BMI's and they don't exercise as much as even the average person so yep. what's going on there how is this possible yeah so there's always been a lot of theories behind this and it's like you know um, you're just born this way or you're more active or you just have more electron uncoupling and non-exercise thermogenesis and they had some pretty interesting findings um, thyroid hormone levels are one of them and then the other one I guess is not as interesting is that they just literally didn't eat as much <laughs> so we found out that the group that is borderline underweight or underweight doesn't eat as much food uh, and then secondarily and this is I think the significant thing was that their energy expenditure was a bit higher than would be expected given their activity and BMI um, and then they did find that they had higher levels of thyroid hormone. Yep. Does this mean you should take thyroid hormone for weight loss? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, this is a very small study of a subset of the population. I think it was around 100 people, a uh, mm -hmm. study over in China. Um, but there are outliers there. So it's not crazy unreasonable you know, that they, like, they're not just wasting away no matter how much they eat. They are eating less. Uh, and there's probably a subset of people, you know, this is maybe the 1% of people that have a much slower than predicted metabolism or much lower yeah. energy expenditure. So, you know, when people are, you know, online shouting about put the fork down and, you know, it's all about the calories, you know, people do have different metabolisms. Um, but, you know, if you restrict calories and you can control that variable very tightly, you know, yes, people will lose yep. weight. If you overfeed people, depending on how much they move, like um, you referred to the non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Yep. Most people, I think that moves about 200 calories per day if you put them in a surplus. So they find themselves more wanting to get up and do things, more fidgeting. Um, but some people have a really a drastic response to that and they can mm -hmm. eat a thousand extra calories per day and they don't gain weight. And it's just because they're, they're moving more, they're subconsciously regulating that. Yep. So these may be the people that are you know, moving more at baseline. I think we all know somebody that you know, bounces their leg habitually or always uh, fidgeting with something. Yep. Uh, those people are just burning a lot more calories at rest, being about doing that every day you know, for 365 days. Calories, they do add up. Yeah, it can be significant. There's a lot of mechanisms like NEAT that can kind of account for small shifts in calories, which is why... Conversely, it can seem so hard if you decrease your caloric intake by, say, 200 calories, then you might subconsciously or unconsciously also decrease that movement and need. Yeah, and that's also been observed where if you put somebody on a lower calorie diet, 
they're less likely to, I would say they're less likely to get their 7,000 or 10,000 steps in, but they do see a decrease in their you know, subconscious movements. They're not going to be bouncing the leg or fidgeting. You're not going to want to get up off the couch quite as much as if you were eating at a, a maintenance calorie level. Uh, there's all sorts of little nuance to you know, weight loss and, and what predisposes somebody. Uh, there's a, a concept I've been reading about called stress reactivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is interesting because I've heard some, um, some obesity medicine you know, physicians talking about uh, you know, stress eating is a stereotype. It's just you know, fat shaming. But there are populations that do stress eat. Some people have the opposite. When they're stressed, they don't eat. Mm-hmm. So to dismiss it as you know, fat shaming is just not factual. Uh, because there's people that do have a higher cortisol reaction to a stressor, and then they do consume more calories. And you know, there's a study that has been done on that. And um, you see in, in lean individuals, they actually didn't increase their calorie intake above and beyond, um, regardless of if they were a, a low stress reaction or a high stress reaction. But for the obese individuals, um, those that had a higher cortisol response to a stressor, uh, they did consume more calories in that subsequent meal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, stress eating is real. Uh, managing stress is very important for people's overall health. Yeah, managing stress and managing cortisol, which is um, somewhat related. But it also has to do with uh, your fight or flight and rest and digest. And it also has to do with centers in your brain, specifically in your hypothalamus, called the anorexigenic center, which is, uh, you think of it as more anorexia. You're tired, you're not wanting to eat. And the orexigenic center, which is you're awake and you are wanting to eat, also known as the hangry center of the brain. The so that's center. Hangry is stress eating as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really compelling center. If somebody is hangry, then you know you're going to eat whatever is convenient and probably the high calorie choice. Like I know mm-hmm. if I'm at an airport and I'm stressed out and I'm you know waiting at a layover, my flight gets pushed back, yep. I'm not going to go get the $15 salad, I'm going to get the, it's still overpriced, but the, yep. the pizza that's there because it, it does make you feel good. People enjoy that, you know, the, the fats and the ultra-processed food. In the short term, yep. you do feel good, You're like, man, this is really good, but if you sit there, and, and this is a strategy we talk about with patients, yep. and you're mindful for like, you know, the hour after, or the, even the day after, if you have a, a cheat day or a cheat meal, you think about, you know, how did that meal really make you feel? Okay, it was enjoyable for 30 minutes, mm-hmm. an hour. And then after that, most people notice that they feel kind of sluggish, maybe they're a little bit foggy the next day. Um, and you think, wow, you know, that wasn't really you know, that good for me. Uh, mm-hmm. Same thing that people do whenever they're trying to help someone quit smoking. Yep. You know, you know, just, just focus on actually how enjoyable you know, that cigarette or uh, that pipe, you know, really mm-hmm. is or isn't. Um, and, and when people focus on that, they find it's kind of a noxious stimuli. Mm-hmm. There's lots of things yep. like that that you know feel good in the short term, but are going to be detrimental to your health in the long term. Those lifestyle interventions, like changing focus or um, even sort of meditating or being mindful of it, the mindful eating is very different than the stress or emotional eating. And obviously, stress and emotional eating is, um, you know, a very real phenomenon. If you look at that the area of the hypothalamus that has those anorexigenic center and orexigenic center, I believe it's called the dorsomedial nucleus of the hypothalamus. It is very closely related to the amygdala, or one of the emotional centers, also known as the limbic system in the brain. 
So you're having this response, which is somewhat therapeutic in the short run. And uh, to go along with the analogy with nicotine cessation, we actually treat this sort of overeating or this sort of when it becomes pathologic every once in a while, if that's a craving or whatnot, that's just normal. Um, you know, everybody has uh, you know therapeutic eating or comfort food from time to time. But when it happens pathologically, um, similar to nicotine addiction or uh, alcohol addiction, alcoholism, that is certainly pathologic. And it's treated very similarly with the lifestyle inter interventions first, and then the tools to help, which are the medications and supplements, often they're the same. For example, naltrexone or low-dose naltrexone, bupropion, which is a um, dopaminergic medication. So often we use similar medications if someone also has insomnia, then you can also just use orexin inhibitors as well. So there's lots of um, different tools that you can use in order to help get you to a point where you, those lifestyle interventions are enough. Yeah, and there's you know different medications like you talked about a two for one use where you know somebody has you know insomnia, so you have a yep. two for one there. Or yep. if somebody has depression. Um, you know, somebody who's on mirtazapine is going to have a hard time losing weight because it's going to spike appetite more yeah. often than not, not for everybody. Yeah. Uh, but then if you say, okay, well, what antidepressants don't cause weight gain? Well, there's, you know, a very old medication, Prozac, fluoxetine. Yep. It's actually associated with some weight loss. Mm -hmm. uh, that, I think that's a big reason of why it did so well as a prescription drug uh -huh. all those years ago. So if you have someone that's you know, concurrently being treated for depression and obesity, you know, that medication makes more sense than mm -hmm. something like mirtazapine or maybe they get into some therapy mm -hmm. and they map out some better thought patterns and they don't have to even take an antidepressant. Yep. You know, not that there's anything wrong with using that as a tool. You're just exactly. like using uh, yosemaglutide. It's kind of a, a guardrails for your happy thinking. It keeps yep. you in that space. Uh, something like semaglutide is like a guardrails for overeating. It keeps you in that therapeutic zone of mm -hmm. how many calories you should be taking in. Yep. Um, that's a good analogy to where you're, um, we're talking a lot about the mind-body interface, or maybe the mind-body-soul interface, where you see the incidence of depression or mood disorders and the incidence of, of obesity um, being somewhat congruent. Sometimes they're concomitant or they happen at the same time. And you can get a lot of two-for-ones with them, which is good. So it's totally okay to both feel better because then you feel better about how you look. And then sometimes the looking better, subjectively or objectively, um, comes secondary to that. Yeah, and I, I, our friend Alec McCarthy was telling us about uh, when everybody started working from home and had their yeah. Zoom meetings and they looked at their faces all day long, uh, it spiked a huge interest in the various you know, cosmetic products and yep. services because you know, people at the end of the day, they do generally care about how they look and they want to look good. Um, and you know, healthy body image, everyone should you know, find something about themselves that they like. I think that's a, a great strategy to build around um, instead of being on the opposite spe end of the spectrum where you're thinking, boy, I, I really don't like this because uh, you can very easily snowball onto some negative thought patterns there. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, myself, I just tend to be a, a perpetual optimist, whether that's always uh, a good coping mechanism or not, I don't know. Uh, but uh, generally, I think it works out. Yeah. I'm either glass half full or glass quarter full, <laughs> depending <laughs> on the situation. Yeah. Uh, 
On our, on our earlier topic, um, we were talking about Prozac or fluoxetine, not to be con confused with fluvoxamine, a different SSRI. Um, some other benefits of it, other than not being heavily weight positive, is that it has active metabolites and it can be one of the easiest, if not the easiest, SSRI to get off of. So that's kind of a, um, you know, we're looking for things with more than one benefit and we're also looking for things with very low side effects. Again, getting out the scale and reading the weight of the risks and the weight of the benefits. Yeah, and, and the type of patient that's in front of you. So if somebody says, you know, hey, I'm just going through a tough time right now. I think I'm going to take an antidepressant for three or six months. Uh, probably venlafaxine is not the thing to start them on because that's going to be, for a lot of people, very difficult to come off of. Yep. So if you have someone that says, you know, I, I've been on and off medications. I do better on them. Uh, I've been on this one in the past. I plan on taking it forever. It's like, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with that. But let's talk about, you know, what the long-term risks are and what some of the unknowns are because mm -hmm. really I mean you don't have data on somebody that's you know no. a large cohort of people that have taken antidepressants for 30 years I mean, you just don't know what's going to happen but if the risk of that unknown is worth it to you to have a better quality of life then you know that makes sense yeah on that note um, if people are trying to put two and two together and think well I'm going to switch from my effects or, or venlafaxine to Prozac and went off that way. Also probably not a great idea. Uh, Fexor is an SNRI, so it works on serotonin and norepinephrine, aka noradrenaline channels. Whereas things like uh, fluoxetine work just on the serotonin channel, so they won't really prevent that noradrenaline type withdrawal. So a better strategy might be looking at something like desvenlafaxine, which is a prodrug for venlafaxine with a longer half-life. So it's always good to talk to your doctors about this, these various things and various strategies. Um, and obviously when you start a medication, you don't always know exactly how long you're going to be on it. But it is a good thing to talk with your doctor about. We love when we get questions like, do I need to be on this for my entire life? Or um, even just someone that says, I don't want to be on anything for my entire life. That context is good to know so that we can take that into account. Um, that's really part of a discussion that we call motivational interviewing, not to get off onto other topics. But it, it's a good thing to keep in mind regardless of the medication that you're considering. Yeah, and you know, there's all sorts of topics like that, the motivational interviewing and shared decision-making. And you know, maybe we do delve into that just a bit because you know, if you have a, if you go into your primary care provider and they're like, you know, this is the plan, this is what we're gonna do, that's not shared decision-making. Shared decision-making is, Okay, here's the data. This is what your lipid profile looks like because everybody likes to, to talk about their cholesterol levels and not taking medications or taking medications to get as low as possible. Uh, it's becoming you know, in vogue and sort of there's mm -hmm. a dichotomy there where people are branching off. Um, but if you come in and you're like, okay, what is the, you know, what's, what's the real risk? And you're looking at a 10 year risk score, uh, then the, the person's going to say, well, I'm not going to take the medication. There's a 3% chance something happens in 10 years. But if you look at your lifetime risk and you're like, yeah, there's a 70% chance that you get cardiovascular disease in your lifetime. And that's going to be very close to 100% chance for mm -hmm. most people if they live long enough. I mean, if you live to be 90, 100 years old, you know, the odds are very high that you're going to develop some cardiovascular disease. Um, yep. So you, you put it in context with like the lifetime risk, you know, this is the medication, these are the side effects. And 
I like to talk about the, the trial where uh, they did an N of 1, uh, and this is a really interesting study. Um, they had three groups of pill bottles that they gave patients. One group contained a placebo, one group contained the statin, which is you know already a pretty good study, but then they gave them an empty bottle. So they had patients take, you know, they didn't know what they were taking. They knew they weren't taking something. Um, so maybe the first month they take a placebo bottle and they get side effects, so my back's hurting. Uh, the second month they take no bottle, or they have a bottle that's empty, they're not taking anything, mm. side effects go away almost universally. And then maybe the next month they're taking a statin and they have side effects. Um, and then the next month they're taking the placebo and they still have side effects. It was very randomized, very well done. And these were patients that were, I would say, more prone to the nocebo effect because they pre they selected these people based on these are people that took statins and then went off of them because they had side effects. Mm -hmm. So that was part of the inclusion criteria, which is an important part to look at when mm -hmm. you're dissecting the literature. Um, and they found at the end, like the take home point is that there was no higher degree of side effects from the statin medication than from the placebo. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that nobody has side effects from statins before I get attacked, <laughs> but certainly people do, and some people do have severe side effects from statins. Yeah. Um, but there, are, there is a subgroup of the population that is very prone to going and reading that a bad thing can happen, and then they take the medication and that bad thing happens to them. You, know, you see a, a higher degree of side effects in certain individuals. Yeah, the self-fulfilling prophecy or the side effect placebo is much stronger with some medications than others. And even things like antibiotics can be this way as well. So some individuals might, um, you know, have a grand distrust of the medical system and even the efficacy of antibiotics, and they literally will not work as well. It reminds me of the study that our colleague Ben, um, Ben Barros brought up. Uh, and I believe he was talking about uh, a couple different groups of people, but two of the groups one of them, they told them about the side effects, and then one of them, they didn't. They didn't even tell them the name, so they couldn't even look up the side effects. Yeah, I, I recall that study. There were three groups there. They had, here's a pill for your heart. Take it. Everything's going to be fine. Um, here's a pill. This is the name of it. It's for your heart. Take it. Everything's going to be fine. And here's the pill. It's for your heart. You could have these side effects. And I believe it was about a three-fold difference in the rate of side effects from the people who didn't know what they were taking, uh, meaning the people that were told about the side effects had about three times more side effects. Yep. And yeah, I, I'm not doing as elegant of a job as Ben discussing that, but I think that was the jest. Yeah, which doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't discuss side effects, but that when you do discuss side effects or when you do look up side effects, you keep it all within context and understand that um, most side effects are rare. There are a few cases where there's very common side effects for some medications and many of them are dose dependent as well, but it's good to keep that in context. Yeah, I like, there are some websites people can go to and maybe we put something like this in the, the description mm -hmm. where you can see what side effects were actually more common in the, uh, the treatment group. So. There's side effects in the placebo group and the treatment group where people are going to have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, headache. And with the actual medication versus placebo, those may not be any different. So people can see, okay, these side effects happen in both groups. They're very unlikely or random. 
Um, and then it's like, you know, these side effects happened more often when people were taking the actual medication. So these are the things I should probably watch for. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.